You're listening to Math Unmuted, where math educators work together to elevate student voice and unmute the math experience in the classroom. My name is Mario Valdez. Yeah, I guess I would just add on just one other point, which is the whole point of our work is to build mathematical instructional capacity. So everything we've talked about in this podcast and could continue talking about, really, that's what it's about. So we look for the intersection of trust and aspiration. The job of a mathematics coach is to see teachers, to believe in them and their potential, their capacity for learning and teaching. So the first thing to consider is, you know, how does feedback impact learning and how does it impact action? When teachers are allowed to, they can identify areas they want feedback on. They're very capable of doing that. And then they're able to identify how they can use the feedback to take action. So, for example, a teacher might choose to get feedback on the kinds of questions that they're posing or patterns of questioning or who they're posing the questions to and what level of cognitive demand of those questions are being asked to different students. In this episode, we continue our conversation with Marta Garcia and Polly Wagner. If you have not listened to episode three with Polly and Marta, we recommend you take a listen as we explored how to support a discouraged teacher and gain insight into planning effective professional development. Today for part two of our conversation, we dive deeper into the role of a math coach, specifically reflecting on how to provide critical feedback and how to create learning experiences that build instructional capacity. Yeah, I appreciate the sport connection. And what comes to my mind is those connections between a coach and a teacher and a teacher and student. There's a lot of parallels there. I think as a coach, we have to be responsive and intentional and be ready to take that step back and be active listeners, responsive to the needs of our teachers that we serve. And I'm thinking as a coach, there's there comes a moment, a situation where we have to provide feedback to our teachers. And sometimes it's critical, constructive feedback. Personally, as a new coach, I'm navigating those waters and thinking about if and when those conversations need to happen. How do we as coaches engage in those conversations? Because Many times those conversations seem to be intimidating and not grounded on collaboration and respecting um, the collective intelligence of everyone. So I'm thinking of how do we create a collaborative space that goes against or goes away from an evaluative conversation? I'm thinking, Polly, from your experience, how do we engage or go into those types of conversations? I I love the word that you used around um, collaborative because there's something about the word feedback that, um, that, that conjures up for many people, a hierarchical situation. Whereas the way you posed the question or the way you're thinking about it actually assumes collaboration, which is different. And so Marta and I are guided by Jim Knight's partnership approach. Um, 
and he's written a lot of things about this. Um, so we could put that maybe in the show notes, but, um, he has a partnership approach to feedback, which really resonates for how Marta and I approach our work with both coaches, administrators, and teachers. Um, and he calls it the collaborative exploration of data. And so the way we think of feedback is more of a conversation between professionals and using artifacts from the classroom to focus our discussion. So we are, we go into the discussion, any kind of conversation with no judgment. We're non-judgmental. But this doesn't mean we don't bring judgment to our coaching discussions. That, that distinction is really important to understand. But rather, we get curious about our colleagues' ideas, and then we share our own, and we develop a culture in which that's the expectation for how we will work together. And um, we try to connect to the things that are teachers or our colleagues are saying and um, bring up our own ideas that are in relationship to the ideas that they've offered. And so this is really about balancing humility with press, right? Being really present for somebody else's idea and being open to their ideas while at the same time, there's something as mathematics coaches that we know and that we bring to the relationship where we want to press, where we want to bring up something that may feel like a stretch. Um, and we hope teachers will do the same with us. Marta, do you, you want to add on? I do. And as you were talking, that last part, that press with just with, with humility, I was thinking of, you know, this idea of the warm demander um, that comes up in a lot in the culturally responsive um, teaching um, and in Zaretta Hammond's work. Um, and, and I just love, um, I wanted to say before I add to my response that Mario was um, thinking about this sort of mirror image between what uh, the coach and teacher relationship and the teacher and student relationship. And then we always want to consider how are my interactions with the teachers or coaches I'm working with mirroring the kinds of interactions we want them to have with their students. And so I think the first thing when thinking about feedback is that we have to listen in order to understand, not to respond. We have to be really present in the conversation. And, you know, when we give feedback, um, in a place where there's fertile ground, we're going to have a good chance of the feedback taking root, right? Rather than throwing feedback into a, a desert. <laughs> so the first thing to consider is, you know, how does feedback impact learning and how does it impact action? When teachers are allowed to, they can identify areas they want feedback on. They're very capable of doing that. And then they're able to identify how they can use the feedback to take action. So, for example, 
a teacher might choose to get feedback on the kinds of questions that they're posing or patterns of questioning or who they're posing the questions to and what level of cognitive demand of those questions are being asked to different students in the classroom. They might think maybe looking, you know, in terms of what, how am I um, posing questions to students that are perceived as having lower status Um or marginalized groups of students. So then I'm, you know, we might have the teacher do an audio tape of a lesson, or I might go in and take notes, just copious notes. And then the teacher and I would sit and analyze the notes and use that data, that evidence uh, to collaborative, you know, to do a collaborative categorization and analysis of the questions and always having the teacher use what happened as the way to provide the feedback. The main thing I think is that the teacher has set goals and that feedback is directly related to that teacher's goals. Now that doesn't mean that as a warm demander, we can't weave in some other things that need to be noticed, especially if there are actions happening in a classroom that are really harmful to students. Those are things that um, we would want to really address um, Without with, without hesitation, um, in a way that's respective of the teacher, but always keep students' um, uh, good educational health at the forefront. Yeah. Can I just want to add on to one thing that you're saying, which is one of my very first questions is to ask a teacher to reflect on either the lesson or reflect on student thinking in the classroom, and I would say. I want to say every single time, but at least I'm going to say most of the time in the teacher's reflection, you will find the opportunities to address both the goals, the stated goals that they've had, but also maybe the things that they haven't yet seen, but is embedded somehow in their reflection. Um, And it's just being really vigilant and being aware of what you know are good next steps for any learner and knowing what the teacher's goals are and sort of just being present for that. I really love that, Polly. And, and, and it's sort of like helping teachers uncover and not just what they need to work on, but sometimes they don't even realize the strengths they have, right? So they're yes. looking at these questions yes. and say, oh, I asked that. I said that. I did that. Yes. So really moving in the same way that we're asking teachers to, um, you know, disrupt deficit language, disrupt deficit views, um, and look at asset-based um, perspectives. We want to do that also in our coaching yeah, there's a lot there we can unpack. One thing that continues to resonate with me is the importance of developing collaborative spaces for reflection and change to occur. I'm thinking of a of a teacher who's being asked to change or try new strategies. It's overwhelming. I feel it centers back on how we approach those conversations, which usually are evaluative conversations. One thing I appreciate from my school leadership team is the value they have placed in providing collaborative opportunities and rethinking the idea of compliance. The message that compliance does not promote growth and change. We we might get teachers to do something for a short time, but 
that word compliance, I think at times can prevent us as educators from fulfilling our potential and growth. So the importance of providing educators opportunities to be learners reflect are critical in fostering change. As we continue to explore, I'm curious to know more about how we build instructional capacity. Yeah, I'm so I'm really intrigued in, with this question, Mario, and I appreciate you asking it. And you know, one of the first things that I thought about was, you know, what what meaning are we bringing to that word in instructional capacity? It can be in, interpreted in different ways, um, and you know, we one of the ways we can think about instructional capacity is like what what are student what are students able to do in terms of the instruction that's offered to them. But then we can also think about what is the what are the what is the instructional capacity of teachers? What are they? And we kind of alluded to this earlier in another um, question. You know, what are teachers able to take on? Right, especially if you're a generalist, you're teaching all the subjects. You have a lot of initiatives being thrown your way. What is the what? Are, what is a teacher capable of taking on and doing effectively? We know that research says that it takes three to five years to implement anything new and really get get good at that. Right. So those are things to consider. Um, and then we could consider what are what impacts instructional capacity, right? So where does the authority lie in evaluating what instructional capacity is or in determining what is the goal for instructional capacity? So there's so many different things to think about. And certainly the culture of a school impacts instructional capacity, right? So it are, is the culture of the school one where teachers are seen as um, important, as where it's seen as an important part of our school to give teachers time to reflect and grow? Um, and, you know, Polly and I, when we work with schools, we're both committed in finding ways to empower both the teachers and the coaches we work with finding ways to engage others in important mathematical ideas, to spend time uncovering the beliefs and the biases that we're, that we might be operating under and to disrupt practices that marginalize students. Um, we love to offer those we work with a space to believe in themselves and their students. We think that is super, super important in terms of instructional capacity and we also are, you know, really determined in uh, mentoring teacher leaders so that they can influence, right? So we always say we're trying to work ourselves out of a job. We never want to stay at a school. I mean, if we have to stay at a school and for the work to continue, then we haven't done our job, right? So instructional capacity means that we're empowering people to continue to grow without us. Yeah, I guess I would just add on just one other point which is the whole point of our work is to build mathematical instructional capacity. So everything we've talked about in this podcast and could continue talking about, really, that's what it's about. So we look for the intersection of trust and aspiration. The job of a mathematics coach is to see teachers, to believe in them and their potential, their capacity for learning and teaching, while also giving them something new to get excited about. 
So that combination of both trusting teachers and then having an aspirational view for them that they may already have or don't know yet that they have. Yeah, we certainly believe that schools are places where students learn and grow, but they must simultaneously be places where the adults who are in that building are also learning and growing. Those reflections are powerful. I, I appreciate the thought of a belief because just like we want our students to believe that math class can be open and creative, I feel that those ideas need to be fostered within our professional development setting and not simply seen as a checkoff, rather a creative learning space that provides motivation and encouragement, a a place where teachers can have access to learning experiences and opportunities to improve our craft. Hey, Mario, can I ask you a question? At the beginning of this podcast, you said that you, both you and Marta did, but you talked about having math class in the morning and that your day would start afterwards. And then just listening to you now, it sounds like there's some transformation that has happened for you that you now see mathematics as this beautiful, exciting place in this space. What happened? How did you move from that that place? My day doesn't start until math is done. And your teacher and your excuse me, your student noticing that there was a different teacher in the room to now where you are, like what happened? Yeah, I think it's a combination of a lot of wonderful people, especially um, I was fortunate to have leadership and admin who created the conditions for me to learn and and ask and imagine to experience mathematics. My admin valued student thinking, they valued student voice, they valued students being sense makers in our math classroom. My first introduction to this wonderful world of math instruction came via our our county office, Tulare County Office of Education, and specifically in 2016 through the Central Valley Network Improvement Communities, a group of educators gathered to reimagine what it meant to teach and learn mathematics, and within our journey, establishing best practices within our math spaces. I remember trying my first which one doesn't belong in my classroom and thinking to myself, this is the best thing. This is the best thing ever. I'm never going to do anything else because for the first time, my students were excited about mathematics, excited uh, to share their thoughts and ask questions. Going back to one of our themes in today's conversation, the importance of having opportunities to experience mathematics and to be learners as educators are so valuable and critical I was just going to say, it sounded like you had an invitation to grow, which I think that would be something that Marta and I would say is our work, is to invite people to come with us on this journey. And that sounds like that's what happened for you. So the more we can invite our colleagues to learn and think um, and experience something in a joyful way, I think the better. Yeah. And to celebrate, right? So you started doing which one doesn't belong and your kids started talking and it's five minutes out of the day, but that's a big, small 
step. <laughs> and really giving, uh, often teachers don't get an opportunity to celebrate those small action steps that can really foster change. As we conclude our conversation today, we've talked a lot about experiencing and creating learning opportunities for teachers and coaches. I think we've alluded throughout our conversation on different ways to support teachers and um, providing meaningful learning experiences. Polly and Marta, drawing on your experiences as math coaches and educators, what is something you would advise a fellow math coach who is intrigued with today's conversation, who is thinking about um, being more intentional about planning professional development, connecting with their teachers, and creating more opportunities to learn about mathematics? How do we start this work? Well, I have an obvious answer. I have an obvious first answer. Marta, you can write, you can say the more thoughtful one. I'm going to have the knee jerk reaction, which is join our PLC. Come and be a part of it. It's, it's free and you're, it's a community of fabulous other dedicated, engaged math coaches and um, Mario, you could talk about that as an experience, like that could be a place where you feel like you've got thought partners and can engage in all sorts of really important, interesting ideas. So that's like a first step. Sign up. Mario, Marta. Absolutely. Yeah. So our professional learning network, we have uh, people, coaches coming from all over the country um, and outside the country. <laughs> and uh, it's really a space to try out ideas, to think about problems of practice and to really humanize the what it means to be a math coach. And if we can really take that perspective that we are humanizing an experience, it's a human endeavor to do mathematics and to do mathematics in a way that can be uh, inviting and joyful and also um, still really learning the content well in a way that students can, um, you know, I like to think about the movie 50 First Dates, right? If you remember that movie, every day was the same day had to be replayed. And so one of the things we think about is, you know, teachers say, well, I taught them that, but now they can't remember. I have to. So really thinking about what are the experiences that have longevity? And so building trust and building relationships with teachers and coaches is the first goal in any work that we do. Uh, if we have a working relationship where people know that we're they're being heard, they're being seen, they're an individual, they're not just part of this plan or this goal, but that we're really paying attention to their own needs and goals, then that reflects how they can begin to think about the work with their students. And so that's a, a really important um part of the work is that to always step back as a coach, it's really easy to get caught up in a list of things that we need to accomplish. I got to start number talks. I got to work on getting manipulatives in the hands of kids. The kids aren't talking. We got to work on discourse. Um, the teachers are are not asking. So all of those are things that a coach might right away pay attention to, but always stepping back and saying, what is what are these people in front of me ready to take on? Um, what are they interested in? And what's the highest leverage first step 
as a coach I can take that's going to directly impact students? That's always the question, right? Which, and, and the answer, there's a, a pretty simple answer to that. The answer is to do mathematics, right? Mario, even you talked about that it was doing the, um, which one doesn't belong. So making sure as a math coach, you know, Marta talked about, you know, the list of mandates that we have to do often in a school and the data we have to follow and all these other things. Make sure you're finding opportunities to do mathematics with your teachers, even if it's just for a short period of time. So they get to have a window into it's into something that is different from what they experienced growing up because that will be, that will make them want more and they'll see you as a math coach being interested in their ideas. Thank you, Polly and Marta for an insightful conversation, for sharing your experiences with our listeners. Uh, Finally, how can our listeners connect with you and your work? Yeah. So uh, the professional learning network, um, is a virtual coaches platform for collaborating. We meet once a month and Mario will share that link, um, with you all in the podcast notes. Um, and then Polly and I, um, also, um, work through, uh, the math coach connection and you can find us at mathcoachconnection.org. Uh, we have a website there that tells you a little bit more about us and the the kinds of um, experiences we can offer you. We are starting a coaching collaborative in the fall um, with a limited amount of 10 coaches who will work with us. Um, so that's an uh, opportunity that's coming up. Anything else, Polly? I can't think of anything. I think the the the... PLN and our website are the two best ways to reach out. And we hope people do reach out to us and just ask us questions. Um, I, I will also say that the, that the feedback we have around the PLN is been, it has been really extraordinary that people really feel like um, they are a part of a larger community and that we have people who are regulars who come every session. We have people who come once a, once a year because they can't for their schedule. We have people who are driving and just listen in. Um, so there are multiple ways to participate. Thank you for listening to Math Unmuted. I want to thank Pauline and Marta for taking the time today to share their thoughts and experiences. If you're a math coach looking to experience thoughtful conversations and enhance your math pedagogy, check out Math Coach Connection. For more information, check out our show notes to connect with their guests. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at Math Unmuted. Take care, everyone. Until next time.